0: Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill. Tonight's films feature Brazilian death races. Each week adam thomas and thomas mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature then both will have to pick a number between one and ten in order to seal their fates for the next episode one will have two good movies the other two bad ones let the chaos begin i am thomas frankenstein mariani and i am adam i am so fucking
1: sorry about death race thomas We'll we'll, we'll get into that.
0: This week, uh, as we kind of hinted at, um, we are doing Death Race 2050 is the bad feature that we're doing, Um, and the good feature is Brazil. Uh, The connection between those two being that this is about dystopian future films, because that movie Captive State is coming out this week that we're releasing this, which I'm kind of curious about. It looks interesting. It could go either really boring or underrated, like Gem, that kind of gets swallowed up in the post-Captain Marvel box office craze.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that's about the best of the two options we might
0: get. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, it's got Goodman. Yeah, well, so did the Connors, so... <laughs> Dude, I have heard the Connors isn't too bad compared to the Roseanne revival. But dystopian fiction is interesting, um, because given our modern times, it's might be not the most popular genre, because <laughs> it feels maybe too real at points. Uh-huh. Um but I don't mind a good dystopian future story, necessarily. I think they can do an interesting job of reflecting the times that they're currently depicting and then kind of reflect on how the world has changed in that time since they originally came out, necessarily. So you can pick some of that stuff out that still lingers.
1: Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I, I think it's a it's a fine genre. Um, there's quite a few that I really like. But there's a lot of bad, too, though, man.
0: That is true. And it fits for our gimmick here, which for those of you who might be listening for the first time, basically uh, at the end of our last episode we picked these two movies from, uh, we both had two films that were either good or bad quality, um, that we didn't know what they were from each other except that they were in the dystopian fiction category, and we picked a number between 1 and 10 uh, for each of our choices, and uh, we ended up with Brazil and Death Race 2050, but first let's go with Brazil. Do you wake from your finest fantasy
1: to return to your daily nightmare then it's time to break out of your dumb humdrum life and into Brazil we're all in it together we've always been close haven't we yes Jack until this all blows over
0: just stay away from me Brazil it's only a state of mind Brazil came out in 1985 December 18th 1985 in the States was uh, directed by Terry Gilliam, uh, who most would know as one of the original members of Monty Python, who mostly did like the animation interstitial stuff, and then from there became a very contentious filmmaker, both in terms of audiences and also within the studio system. <laughs> to say the least, especially yeah. with this movie, um, had a very infamous sort of production. Um, it was written by Gilliam, along with uh, Tom Stopper, who's a very famous playwright. Obviously, most would know, probably, uh, Rosa Crancy, Guildenstern are dead. And then Charles McEwen, who collaborated with Gilliam a lot more after this, with stuff like uh, Baron Munchausen and um, The imaginary of Dr. Parnassus, amongst other things. And um, I'll admit, like, I, this was my pick, and I'm a big Terry Gilliam fan from way back, at least of... His earlier works from like the 70s through the 80s through the 90s I really love so much of his stuff including this is the middle of his sort of imagination trilogy which uh, was preceded by time Bandits which people forget was actually a pretty big hit when it came out which is weird because that movie is very odd and I don't think it would be a hit at any later time than like 1981 <laughs> no, necessarily not like that, yeah. no. And then he followed this up with uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, um, which was a sort of an infamous flop, terrible production that uh, happened. But I personally do love that movie myself. Are you at all a fan of Gilliam?
1: I want to call myself an uber fan or anything. I think it's very sort of hit and miss with me. Like, I definitely really do enjoy 12 Monkeys. I do like Time Bandits, even though it is just a bizarre fucking time capsule that shouldn't even ever have been made, let alone exist still and made money um i think i've seen munchausen once and i'm definitely curious about the quixote movie that he's supposedly finished but it's still having problems
0: right that was sort of his infamous the man who killed don quixote production Uh that um the moss and la mancha he tried to do it and then now he finally has a production that was finished but has had so much trouble getting a release at all because <laughs> uh-huh. Amazon dropped out of and all this other stuff. And to be fair, he's not helping himself with just some of the recent sort of curmudgeon comments he's made, especially weirdly sort of defending Harvey Weinstein. Oh, these women that go in with Harvey Weinstein, they know exactly what they were going into and shit yeah, like that, probably. which is like, dude, shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah, you probably shouldn't be saying that. That's the thing is Terry Gilliam always wants to be the rebel. Terry Gilliam has that sort of fiery instinct in him that he always wants an enemy i think what kind of catapulted that was probably ever since like monty python the holy grail which was the first feature he directed at all he co-directed with terry jones Mm. and the whole thing was he wanted to make this look like a pasolini movie and all the monty python guys were like dude it's comedy
1: right exactly (laughs) i would almost like equate terry gilliam to like the directing version of like alan moore the guy who wrote The Watchmen and everything like that. Which is just...
0: interesting given Terry Gilliam tried to make a version of Watchmen. One of many versions that yeah. tend to be made. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but no, Gilliam, the problem is, man, I don't know if it's his age or if he thinks he's more important than he is or, or what it is. But he just con- he's got that foot and mouth disease all the time. He's constantly just running off at the mouth. I think that might be one of the reasons where I kind of don't follow his work as much.
0: Has such an abrasive personality i think it comes from like his start being an animation he had so much singular control like he was by himself doing those animations on monty mm. python so he had such meticulous control over every single detail that he wanted to apply that to directing and shocker that human beings don't respond as well as like cutouts i think that's w- what like john cleese and other people have said like shocker that we didn't respond as well <laughs> But then again he does have recurring actors that come in in and out, um, including, in this one you have like Jonathan Price, who he worked with several times, uh, Catherine Hellman, who recently passed away in between us recording episodes, who pops up in here, Peter Vaughn, amongst other people, who work with him quite often, including another Monty Python member, Michael Palin, in this mm. one. Um, and he's is
1: fantastic in it. Uh,
0: but we'll mm-hmm. get into all that. But basically, to get into actually Brazil, Brazil uh, basically is, imagine 1984, but with a bit more dark humor than George Orwell put in originally. Like, a lot of the satire's still there, a lot of sort of that sharp, satiric intent that he had originally is there, but there's simply a lot more of sort of, like, the sillier Britishisms that Terry Gilliam kind of adopted from Monty Python, which, interesting, because he's the only American member of Monty Python. Right. He actually grew up in uh, Minnesota. <laughs> interesting fact. We basically follow Sam Lowry, who's our protagonist, who works for Central Services in this dystopian future that's a lot like 1984, where he uh, works for... It, it's weird. I love the, the bureaucracy of this movie because it makes these titles so pointless but he's mm-hmm. going to graduate in information retrieval um, but he's currently in records he's in the records department but he keeps saying like no I don't want to do that and he has these like, big flights of fancy it's kind of almost also like a Walter Mitty story as well in that regard where there's a lot of big fancy sequences that occur and I personally love this movie I remember I first watched it I went through like a Monty Python phase in like late middle school to early high school and I also kind of latched on to Terry Gilliam's movies as a result of that and I love how this movie looks, I love the world that it creates. I watched this before I ever read 1984 in high school, and I I sort of like the total cynicism that's going on throughout, and even like the sort of hopefulness and even like Sam Lowry as a character I think is very interesting and dimensional and could only be played by Jonathan Price. I think Jonathan Price is that right mix of being an everyman while also being kind of a sleazy piece of shit. At the same time, he has that right mix. I don't think because interestingly, they were trying to do this for a younger character. They were trying to get like Tom Cruise, I think, early on the studio (laughs) when him, which. In 1985 would have been a bad choice. That would not have worked at all. Yeah. You need somebody who feels like they've been churned out by the system for years. And Jonathan Price fits that perfectly, where he's just kind of been in this rut and all this other stuff, but I like that at the same time it doesn't completely absolve him of any sins by being like a dreamer and a wanderer, because he's constantly still fucking over people, and he's been haunted, but he's still is just so driven by this one thing of trying to get his dream girl and all this other stuff. I like all of that, but... When we were doing our picking last week, Adam, uh, you kind of mm-hmm. said you didn't remember liking this the first time you saw it. Correct. And uh, now that you've revisited it. How do you feel?
1: I like it more now. I, I agree with you. I like the look of it, the general aesthetic, all the you know the pipes everywhere, and just seeing all the different actors. Like, oh my god, that's oh my god, that's Bob Hoskins. Oh, that's Jim Broadbent. Yep. Oh, Ian Holm. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's nonstop. And like I said earlier, Michael Palin just pretty much steals the movie for me. I mean, he's perfect. Nobody else could have played that part. But the movie feels a little long in the tooth for me. It's not a huge running time, but there's parts to it where I'm like, okay, let's get moving a little bit
0: here. Okay, that's a question. Is How long was the version you watched? Because there's a couple different versions of this movie, which we'll get into.
1: Well, I watched... Whatever version is on Prime. So I think Prime is the basic theatrical version. So it's a little over two hours.
0: Okay. To be fair, keep in mind, I have the Criterion DVD that has, like, all three of the different versions. And I always <laughs> go for the Terry Gilliam sort of European cut that's about mm-hmm. two hours, 23 minutes. So I think it's slightly longer than your... That's,
1: version. No, that's exactly what my length was.
0: Okay, so that is the official Terry Gilliam-approved longest cut. There's also, right. like, a 132-minute American cut, and then the infamous Love Conquers All studio cut that's 90 minutes long.
1: But, I mean, there's a lot in this movie to like. There's a lot of little funny bits. Like, I lost my shit both times De Niro ziplined. It's so funny to me.
0: We're all in it together, kid. For for me with De Niro, it's when he says bloody paperwork, because it's like, Mm -hmm. De Niro, you can't say bloody. You're not British. This doesn't work at all.
1: At all. I will agree also with Jonathan Price. See, Jonathan Price, this is sort of the character with the traits that he's played kind of forever and still continues to play. Even in the Pirates movies as her father, he's still kinda of this guy. Kinda of yeah. wants to do the best, but he's still kind of a sniveling prick too. I mean, that's just kinda of who he is. Um, and he's fantastic too. I've always liked Jonathan Price. And I know there was production problems, so you didn't get much with Kim Grease because her and Gilliam didn't get along or whatever
0: the case. But I, I, she needed more. Upon this watch, the biggest issue I do have is Kim Grease, less in, like, her initially in the very opening scene, when she meets up with Jonathan Price. I like that stuff, especially. Yeah. Where there's sort of a conflict there. Um, and I think she's fine there. I will say, amongst the people who he wanted originally, like, Kim Grease was not his first choice, he attempted to audition people like uh, Rosanna Arquette, Ellen Barkin, Jamie Lee Curtis, Rebecca Dormorne, Ray Don Chong, uh, Kelly McGillis... Um, Kathleen Turner and even Madonna. At oh a certain boy. point, this would have been perfect for Curtis, though.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think Jamie Lee Curtis out of all those would be the best pick. So maybe even a young Alan Barkin. I, I, you know, but you got to figure Kim Grease. They just didn't get along, and she did the best she could, and
0: he chopped the shit out of it. so because oh yeah, that especially affects once she comes back to him, and there's that whole stuff where like she stays over at his mom's place and then has the big romantic sort of bed scene that's where I think the movie really falters is that whole sequence just because mm-hmm. I don't quite believe it but at the same time the movie's kind of trying to go for like a sort of this is a dream logic overall and they're trying to kind of con- I would hope that like in this scenario he would have leaned more into this is sort of his fantasy of what he wants this isn't really reality but then there's also the dream reality that comes in with the ending and all that other stuff so that's where I think it falls apart the most Is I agree Right there, yeah. Because it's just... It, I don't believe that sort of connection would have developed at this point. Cause that Sam, quickly, too. Right. Because she is so much more of like a fierce independent woman and Sam is a fucking buffoon.
1: He's a sniveling teenager.
0: Yep, I, I really love that whole car chase sequence where he's trying to... Like, let's go faster! Let's go this way! And it's like, oh, you're you're just jumping into this, you fucking idiot. Oh, <laughs> this is screwing incredible. everything up. Yeah. <laughs> just everything.
1: Completely. Um... I did really like the dream sequences. I love the costuming, especially his. I think it's so bizarre and cool. And the giant samurai alludes, reminds me of, you know, the last episode.
0: Right. Oh. <laughs> but, I, I could see uh, this being an influence, maybe on a young Zack Snyder, Sucker Punch. Yeah, a
1: hundred. But that's the thing too. You watch this movie and I see influences from this movie all over the place. There are a lot of movies, especially in this genre, that take a lot, from Brazil.
0: Well yeah, especially just with like the production design which mm. um it was nominated for its art direction and its screenplay at the Oscars. You can totally tell especially the art direction instantly just reminded me of the Anton first designs for the original Batman, like yes. the Batman. Oh, definitely. All the city stuff, all of, like the big doorways and the sort of gothic architecture have so much of that but also there's even what i like about this movie is definitely that it has influences from like a 1984 or even like sort of ayn rand with some of like the statue designs as well mm-hmm. um that kind of pop up it's this interesting sort of pastiche of different dystopian fiction that had come before and then like i said before with dystopian fiction in general would influence so much later terry gilliam despite you know all of his sort of issues is definitely a guy with a distinct vision. And I love whenever he can, like, actually portray that vision wonderfully, but at the same time bounce it off of people who can kind of rein him in a bit. With, like, Tom Stoppard's, like, sort of style of actual, like, human interaction, which is something Terry Gilliam rarely actually gets right. I, like, I love the recurring joke about Michael Palin having triplets. hmm uh-huh. Oh, how are the twins? Triplets. Oh, how time flies. Cash Great he joke.
1: Messes, he messes up his wife's name He's because he's just all over the place.
0: Or, and especially with his daughter, the scene with the little girl, who's actually Terry Gilliam's little girl, and her real name is Holly, so that Uh was not even a purposeful thing. She kept saying, I'm Holly, because that's her actual name, Uh and Michael Palin just rolled with it. Genius. Yeah, that's pretty cool. The fucking mask. God. The baby mask? Terrifying, Yeah, terrifying, dude.
1: And uh, I think we've mentioned here before about, I'm kind of a fan of bleak endings. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you
0: get bleaker than this? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, we'll definitely need to talk about that, because I, I also love the ending of this movie so much. Because it's definitely, this whole movie, along with being sort of a play in 1984, is Terry Gilliam's total fuck you to major studio films as oh, well. obviously. Because there's, there's definitely, like, Harry Tuttle is the perfect example of, like, typical sort of studio hero everyman. Like, you could see him being played by not just the De Niro, but anybody from, like, a Stallone, a Schwarzenegger like they would definitely sort of play like he's the handyman who goes around sort of the hero of the people in this dystopia it totally feels like that and the way especially he goes out is also mortifying it's so simple but it's really upsetting
1: yeah it's, it's totally bizarre and I guess too you know doing a little bit of research that man did no one like working with De Niro on this well, I mean, because
0: he's super method, so obviously, super but, but he's has such a small part. That it's just like, did you actually like, become a handyman? What did you do?
1: <laughs> he was down for a week. They had to extend it by another week of shooting. You know, most scenes were done in one or two takes. He took like 27 for one scene and he still forgot his lines. It's like, didn't, didn't hear. oh man, get your shit together. You know, that guy's got a lot to prove though. That's the problem. I know, right? He's just—he's so small,
0: especially at this time. Like, no one knew him. That's what I'm saying, dude. Like, come on, bro. (laughs) Get your name out there. Do the work. (laughs) He hadn't really sparked until, like, Meet the Parents eventually, right? That's that's where he really hit big. Uh, Well, Bad Grandpa, I'd say. You know, right. Meet the Parents is sort of the soft opening to Bad Grandpa. (laughs) His magnum opus, that's true. Um, (laughs) But I, I do like him at the same time popping in and out. I think he's a great sort of, he's this masculine ideal that Sam wants to be. Every mm-hmm. time he pops up, it's just sort of, and especially how that contrasts with, we, we kind of alluded to Bob Hoskins and uh, Derek O'Connor as the Central Services repairmen yeah. that come in. I love when Sam brings up the idea of the form, like a, a B-stroke six, and the one guy mm-hmm. is like in a catatonic state, and Bob Hoskins is like, oh, motherfucker. Just hits him with the fucking We'll the come wrench. back. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get you back.
1: I always love seeing Bob Hoskins. I am such a big Bob Hoskins fan. <laughs> He's so good. Even Mario, even though I hate the movie, it's a terrible movie. Which, by the way, there's a lot of that, too.
0: Yes, okay. I, the, the design especially did remind me of the Super yeah. Mario Bros. And he also, he's wearing a red hat where the bill gets bigger with every scene he comes back <laughs> for. Which is great. <laughs>
1: That's so funny. What a classic <laughs> gag. That he just decided to throw this. Yeah, no, it's uh, it gets so trippy at the end. Like, the movie's already trippy. Mm-hmm. But once it gets into, like, his delusion... You're like, what the fuck is going on? Like, as soon as he goes into the funeral home, I'm like, wait a minute, what?
0: Yeah, that that whole ending <laughs> sequence yeah, for sure. Just, um, but I want to circle back to Michael Palin, who we were referencing earlier, yeah. because the genius of Michael Palin here is that he was always known in Monty Python. He always played like the nicest characters possible. Because, admittingly, he's incredibly charming. Like, yeah, he he he's made this dude in the uh, you know the dead parrot. I mean, he's the everyman. Right, he's the ever man especially, I love, his post-Python career last 20 years has been travel documentaries where he just comes around like, Hello, I'm Michael Palin. I'm here to be nice to you. <laughs> that's literally his career, of, like, the last 25 years or so, because he's that just, like, charming and affable. And Gilliam uses that perfectly here, because he comes off as, like, oh, he's your best friend, greatest guy possible, and just how he unveils the fact that, like, oh, wait, what is he doing with, like, the lab coat, and he has oh, blood on him, oh, and then he's a torturer? Cool.
1: Yeah, dude. The lab coat's got, like, cuts and shreds in it where someone was probably fighting back. Yep. Yeah, oh, man. And his daughter's sitting there waiting for him. That's how easy it is for him to just do what he does that his kid is sitting in the other room. Yep. While he's probably just horribly mutilating someone.
0: Yeah, because he cares so much about appearances and being, like, the person in the society who like fits in perfectly and then when he's like screaming at Sam when he like uncovers the mic at the end of the movie also. It's oh, just yeah. like it's it's so malicious, it's so just filled with rage. It's such a great transformation for him. It may be his best performance just as an actor in general. I could agree with that. I think so. There are also a lot of great people, like we mentioned Catherine Hellman earlier as Sam's mother is amazing. Just as sort of like the socialite who's going around being very nonchalant about being mutilated to become younger. I mean and... horribly Oh, my God. The scene where Jim Broadbent is, like, using her skin like putty is terrifying.
1: Dude, it's so scary. That image stuck in my head because, you know, this movie came out about two years after I was born. And I remember seeing that image in, like, a magazine or something. And it stuck with me. It's still, like, when I saw it, it gives me the shivers a little bit. It's creepy, dude. And has done so well and effectively, too. Nah, man, I don't want to see this shit. <laughs> but out of context it's even scarier now that i watched it and i know what it's happening it's like it's not that bad but when i was a kid and saw that man it freaked me the hell out and he basically uses like chip clips to hold her fucking skin back
0: and then covers her in saran wrap and it's like oh twice as beautiful as she was before
1: (laughs) so bizarre it's like using paint on her face and it's almost like sexual (laughs) and jim broadbent as a young man is creepy and weird
0: That's true, yeah, because we're so used to
1: him at least being 40. Every time I see him, and I know he's been in everything, but every time I see him, I just think of fucking Hot Fuzz for some reason, because he just killed me in that movie so much. Great big bushy beard! (laughs) (laughs)
0: Like, especially the contrast between her and, um, I forgot the character's name, but her Her friend that keeps coming around, um, who gets more and more mutilated as well, with, like, she has more and more bandages. And then eventually, to where you were talking about the funeral parlor and, like, the dream sequence, where she's, like, a fucking bag of gelatinous bones and shit.
1: Oh, I know, dude, it's so gross. Yeah, and they're constantly trying to set him up with her daughter. And I (laughs) love that scene, too, where he's, like, he sits down and he's, he's trying to be really nice about it to explain to her, like, you know, I'm not into it. And she's like, no, it's
0: okay, I don't like you either. <laughs> I
1: have the look on his face like, what do you mean?
0: That's the most he ever gives a shit about her at all. which when oh, she insults God. him. Perfect, she yeah. Like
1: him. She doesn't even insult him, she just doesn't like him.
0: There, there are other great, like, um, I mentioned Peter Vaughn earlier, um, who plays Mr. Helpman, who is a sort of warped version of, like, the Wizard of Oz in this movie, yeah. as sort of the Big Brother type, um, where he comes, he's this sort of, Attempting to be literally a helpful persona, given his name. Whenever he's on television and whenever he's, like, with Sam, just like, I just want to help you rise up because I knew your father. And all that stuff. And I, I like the fact that there's that one scene where Sam sneaks into his office and he sees the picture of his mom on the desk. Yeah. Just says yeah. everything. About- oh, 100%.
1: Great. Right. I love the Sam. I need your help. And it shows him shaking him because he's got done pissing. Yes. <laughs>
0: and then another disturbing scene later when he shows up as Santa inside of that cell.
1: Yeah, so weird.
0: Can't let the orphans wait.
1: Oh, you know, during the dream sequence when they were pulling cage and like this is just fucking nightmare fuel <laughs> like a hundred percent
0: well the whole movie feels like it kind of goes in but it feels like a weird dream that you would try and describe to somebody after you woke up and you'd be they'd be like what what the fuck are you talking about <laughs> right this doesn't make any sense whatsoever but i think Gilliam does a great job of making at least the logic of it keep going where like the story basically of like he has to have a check from a guy who was in executed instead of uh harry tuttle it was literally like a Beetle goes into the typewriter that causes a one typo, and it costs the man his life. Right, um you know, that's such a great satirical point about the bureaucracy of just this horrible environment, and how that just results in like, oh, I have this check needs to be like taken back, need to bring this invoice back to this woman, and the scene where like Sam confronts that woman, who's oh, just I like, know. it's so mortifying. Um, oh, it's terrible, and, and
1: when she's you know, what have you done with his body, and she's freaking out. And is his sniddling ass responses. You know, I, I didn't have to come all the way here. This was very difficult for me. <laughs> go, go, go fuck yourself. <laughs> man.
0: That's why Jonathan Price's performance is so good, because he has enough of an everyman quality where you don't completely hate him. But at mm. the same time, he is such a like buffoon and has this horrible methodology just because of like the environment he was raised in that he just lacks also empathy. At the same time, he's actually being confronted by that. And he's trying to escape both this weird society in terms of, like, just the corporate culture, but also guilt. He's trying to, like, get rid of both of those feelings at the same time. And that's what's ultimately, like, his sinful downfall. Is that he's trying to avoid responsibility in either direction just once this magical, you know, relationship with her, her with a Jill, that won't work out. Uh, that's what I love, especially as I've grown older, that's become... The Sam Lauer characters, really. It's not about escaping just like this corporate system. It's like, no, you're trying to escape that, but also not trying to absolve anything, not trying to help anybody. It's the perfect example of like a complicated dystopian main hero who's not really a hero. He's just a coward.
1: Yeah, that's what I mean, that's what what does work about the movie, though, too. You know, he's not a swashbuckler in there to save the day he is in his dreams. But when it all boils down to it, he's just a regular man trying to do something way beyond his means, his intelligence, his strength, everything. I mean, he just falls apart constantly. He has no idea what to do or what he's doing at basically every second. I mean, to the point where it even starts off with him sleeping in because the electronics failed. Without that, he's completely unreliable. And that's, like I said, that's what makes the movie work. You kind of pull for him. But at the same time, when the ending comes, you're like, yeah, this makes sense.
0: And weirdly, especially this watch, I felt so much more sorry for Ian Holm as his boss. Me where too. he's obviously like, he's also kind of like a sniveling dude who you would figure, oh, he might be the villain of a different movie. But the tragedy of his character is just that he's completely lost too. <laughs> like he just sits in his office alone, completely distant from all his employees who kind of hate him and just want to watch movies instead of actually work.
1: Which that's all he wants to do too.
0: <laughs> right. But he has to be like, oh, I'm supposed to be the top man. I know what's going on. Sam, please help me. I don't know what I'm doing. Even like in the fantasy sequence, when he sort of pops up as like the stone sort of golem character coming to try and stop Sam, he's like, Sam, don't go. There's almost weirdly, I I don't know if this was intended, but almost kind of like an attraction almost between, I think, and Ian Holm that Sam wouldn't reciprocate. I kind of um, felt.
1: Maybe. I I mean, I can kind of see that, but I kind of see it as more or less like, Sam might have been his, in a weird way, his friend to him, like his only friend, the only yes. one he were you know, that he could actually have human interaction <laughs> with on any other level. But again, Gilliam is so chocked full of subtext. Gilliam movies, mm-hmm. right? I mean, who the hell knows? You could watch this movie another five times and still pick up something new,
0: right? I didn't really realize it until this watch, but the moment where he goes into information retrieval in his new office and his neighbor buddy, who's Charles McEwen, the co-writer. I love the fact that I realized that desk is there in the middle. As a kid, I was just like, "Why?" I just that this is like a funny gag. But the realization was like, "Oh, they're so fucking cheap, even at this higher level mm-hmm. that they have a what, two guys shared the, the same desk in two completely different offices."
1: <laughs> I know, and it's so funny because even like the poster in the background is cut off right down the middle. Right. <laughs> like... <laughs>
0: And he's also very funny, too, especially the whole bit with the computer where he's like, oh, I, I'm a whiz with this. I know how to do this. Oh, it's broken. You haven't turned it on.
1: <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's like one finger. Click. Click. And he's to the point where he even falls asleep and then he prints him out the information
0: he already has. <laughs> right. Um, but we should definitely get into the sort of weird production and then, as a result, the ending of the movie was the biggest sort of controversial point with um, the sort of American release of this through Universal, Fox released it internationally, and they got most of the budget put up for this. But the American release was handled by Universal, and Terry Gilliam infamously sort of had a bout with Sid Sheinberg, who ran uh, Universal at the time. Also, the husband of Lorraine Gray, who was the wife in the Jaws movies.
1: Oh no shit! Yeah, that's why yeah. she got that
0: role. She's also very talented, actually.
1: Yeah, she's but, not terrible,
0: but no. I mean, yeah. So. Sid Sheinberg was very adamant about, like, this is not commercial at all. We need to cut this down severely. And we need to change the ending to be a happy one. And yeah. Gilliam was obviously against that. And there were so many big battles that literally resulted in, like, they both took out variety ads where they were going back and forth about this. I love Terry Gilliam went to USC, who invited him, like, hey, can you do a talk with the students? And he's like, oh, sure, let me bring an audiovisual aid, which is my entire cut. <laughs> and... <laughs> He actually was, like, fighting with the studio executives in the classroom during the lecture (laughs) before the movie because they found out about it. And eventually what got the movie to be released as he wanted it to be was that the L.A. critics were at one of those screenings that he did for a college and ended up voting it, like, best film of the year. That makes sense. Right, which is why he ended up getting released in the version he wanted, though there is a Love Conquers All cut that severely... Edits the movie down to ninety minutes and was on TV in some markets. And you know, admittingly, Scheinberg at least had a point that like this is not a commercial movie at all.
1: No, at all. And I think the bo- the box office speaks to that,
0: right? Where that to be fair, what I have here is that it made ten million in the United States off a fifty million dollar budget. The European numbers apparently aren't available, though it was way more of a success, obviously, over there in its sure. original cut. Uh, I mean, I get it in terms of, like, it's it would be, you know, necessarily hard to sell this to a main audience, and probably trying to, as you mentioned, maybe cut it down to something a bit more malleable, but even Gilliam said at the time, like, look, I've had screenings of this, and I know some people aren't gonna like it, but at the same time, I had this movie, and I want to release it the way that I want to release it. And it's it's that weird thing where, like... This is kind of what I'm talking about, where he sort of had a villain, in this case, with Sin Scheinberg, And I think in any other production, he always wanted to see some villain he could fight against, no matter what. And I think that's kind right. of what turned him into the guy he is now, the bitter old curmudgeon. And I just don't think... You know, it it you don't necessarily need that in every production just because you had it that once. That sort of ego and inflated, per, like, persona that he has doesn't need to be with every production even you know i mean he also had that with like it's weird with that harvey weinstein defense i referred to earlier considering brothers grim he fought with them constantly about like cuts and budget and all that other shit
1: yeah well i mean like you said i think it's more or less he just wants to have an adversary at all times if he has an adversary who wants to cut his movie so he does the cut of their movie and it doesn't work then it's their fault if they don't cut it then maybe the studio should have stepped in I mean, either way, he comes out smelling like roses. Mm -hmm. I mean, he really does.
0: Right. But at the same time, you can agree that this version for maybe some of the pacing issues is still the only version that can probably exist in this This is the best version.
1: Yeah, this is the best version. There's no question. The first time I saw it was the hour and a half version.
0: And I was
1: completely like, not necessarily lost, but, well, probably because I was pretty young. I'm like, what the hell did I just watch? But, no, this version, if you're gonna watch it, I mean, I, it has to be the Terry Gilliam version.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, because you lose so much of, like, especially that whole ending sequence we're talking about where we have this whole scenario set up of, like, oh, man, Sam's stuck in a pickle, he can't get out of the scenario, and then Robert New York just comes in and saves him, and then horribly gets suffocated by paperwork, and then he, Sam gets ends up riding off in the sunset magically with Jill, and they're all live happily after after, and it turns out that he's been tortured to the point where that's the world he exists in now he's, yeah, he's really in his mind. yep and he's in that chair and they can't torture him anymore but he's also just permanently in like a coma that he can't get out of
1: mm-hmm.
0: just humming the theme right which we should mention uses the brazil the actual song throughout the score which credit to i love michael Kamen's score in this movie yeah it's
1: fantastic
0: it's operatic, it has, like, waltz elements. It also has, like, great sort of noir jazz moments, too, like when he's walking around. Um, I, I I love the score in this, too, but I, it's such a great ending to where he's this guy who constantly fantasized, couldn't get out of his fantasy, and now he has this perfect ending of he's stuck in his fantasy, except it's the... <laughs> he's in a catatonic state and can never get out of that.
1: Yeah. No, I wouldn't even go... Uh, it may be bittersweet. Maybe. Maybe <laughs> it's pretty dark, <laughs> but again, I mean, I wouldn't have wanted this to end any other way it's It's a perfect ending to this movie, like you he doesn't win, you can't win. the problems are too big for one guy,
0: yes, and that you'll at the end of the day, you'll be just swallowed up in the horrible corporate culture mm-hmm. that has existed for ages, and you can't really fight against it. Have a good night, everybody. <laughs> Throw away your popcorn <laughs> bags on your way out.
1: You're right. right. <laughs> Thanks for coming out.
0: and Enjoy your piece of pie at the diner after the movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's the only ending that works for this, just because that's the coward's way out, basically. Yep. <laughs> that's that's the only way he could really have any kind of a happy ending. And I think it's what really makes it Terry Gilliam's most overall like perfect vision. I think for a movie, because so many of his other movies definitely have like weird compromises or weird just. Um, limitations of budget or certain actors or anything else, whereas this, I think, is the perfect consolidation of, like, all of his sort of visual style, his use of actors, great performances all around, and wonderful production design that, as you mentioned, is so influential from here on out, And Mm -hmm. and especially if you've been kind of turned off from Gilliam from maybe some of his comments or just sort of the perception, like, all of his movies are too buck wild... I would weirdly say this is probably one of his more mainstream movies. It's like this in Time Bandits. Yeah, I think and, this is well, one, of his, one of his more restrained. Right, or Twelve Monkeys, obviously. Twelve Monkeys was his biggest hit. Yeah, Twelve much Monkeys was his biggest hit, but
1: there's part in Twelve Monkeys where you're like, what the
0: fuck? Right, but imagine this that times... Strange. This is about that times at least, like, two or three.
1: <laughs> this stays in the world it's in, for the most part, other than his dreams, which are clearly dreams. Right.
0: Where Twelve Monkeys, they just kind of like
1: Is he dreaming? I don't know. Leave it up to you. Yeah.
0: And for all that, it's one of my favorite movies ever. But I'll just say that as my final thoughts. So your final thoughts, Adam, on Brazil?
1: I think it's a good movie. Uh, I think just to see it, to see the influences that have spawned because of it and the set design and the artwork and the, you know, the matte paintings and all those things. I mean, it's just everywhere in cinema, especially in the genre. I do feel it's a little long in the tooth in certain parts, but other than that, I mean, it's chocked full of great performances and it's a good story. I, I I can appreciate a story where the lead, you know, protagonist is incredibly flawed and he's really flawed. He's, he's, he's a sniveling prick, but yeah, halfway root for him. And I can get behind that because that's closer to reality than anything else. Um, so I think it's definitely
0: worth the watch. And uh, now to transition uh, to maybe a less elaborate production than Brazil. Uh, We have the Roger Corman production, Death Race 2050. My fellow citizens of this great country of ours. Now this is all about freedom. freedom. The freedom freedom to sit on your big fat... Ass all
1: day. I'm watching the singly greatest sporting event known
0: to man. Welcome, welcome to the Death Race. Are you ready? Let's score these fuckers. So Death Race 2050. Uh this is, as I mentioned, a Roger Corman production. It is Technically, a sequel to Death Race 2000, which was the film he also produced back in 1976, right? 75, 76? 76, 75, somewhere around there. Right, his sort of exploitation film, and not to be confused with the remake and its several sequels that have come out since 2008, the Jason Statham one. Mm-hmm. Adam, this was your pick, so uh, why don't yeah. you start off the discussion about Death Race 2050?
1: <laughs> oh, fuck. Okay, well, I picked it. Uh, blind. I hadn't seen it. But, uh, well, that's not true. I saw half of it. I never finished it. I'm kind of just an odd fan of the Statham one, just because it's terrible, but I'm like, it's Jason Statham, you know? So it's kind of enjoyable, and the original I've seen before with Carradine and Stallone, so I'm like, man, I gotta give this one another watch. It's like one of the newer, if not the last Roger Corman produced movie and Roger Corman is you know A pretty big staple And fuck Me I I don't know Where to start with this one I, I was offended In so many different ways Ah uh,
0: <laughs> Calm down
1: <laughs> What kind of <laughs> debt does Malcolm McDowell have
0: I mean I mean, it's probably a combination of debt, and also that he probably pissed off a lot of people (laughs) in Hollywood (laughs) when he had, like, the chance to be a star. Like, after Clockwork Orange, that dude probably had the potential to be a much bigger star than he ended up being, and just, I think, pissed off a lot of people. (laughs) I mean, I guess, but
1: other than him and, like, Manu Bennett from Arrow and the Spartacus show,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: they're the only recognizable guys in it, and... Nobody
0: cares in this movie. You know, I, well, well, I here's what I'll say is that Malcolm McDowell definitely does not care.
1: Yeah, no, at all.
0: <laughs> he does not care whatsoever. But I would argue everyone else cares. Maybe just that care is completely misguided and dialed up to eleven.
1: Yeah, I'd say maybe Bert Grinstead as Jed Perfectus really cares.
0: Right, he really cares, and I would argue, I don't, I don't didn't mind him necessarily as much as I think it's the role is weird, because, alright, for me, um, I mentioned at the end of our last episode, I had not seen anything Death Race related prior to this week. Right. I knew of Death Race 2000 and the remake, but I just never seen any of that stuff. And so I actually watched the original Death Race 2000, the Jason Statham remake, and then this one, and I will say, with those three movies, the, the first one first of all, is a great sort of 70s drive-in movie mm-hmm. in terms of just the the basic concept is it's the distant year of 2000, uh, which always great. Not That's predicting the, the future quite right. Excellent. Um, and in this world, um, the main sort of entertainment is this death race in which racers race all across the country, and the big incentive is for them to murder people on the road, which will drive up their points. I believe it's the adults are about 10... Babies are, like, 20, and old <laughs> people are, like, 80. Um, yeah, something like that. Right, and the main sort of star of this, the biggest racer, is Frankenstein, played in that one by David Carradine, who's this guy who's been in so many horrible crashes that he's been, has, like, limb transplants and, like, a robotic arm. Great. Totally cheap, but perfect for Yeah, that awesome. movie. Uh, awesome. And that first one is actually, I didn't know this until I watched it here, is directed by Paul Bertel who's someone we talked about previously, who's been in, like, Joe Dante movies and a lot of Roger Corman movies, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, and he directed that one. He's also plays the doctor early on in that movie. And that one has a great mix of sort of his satirical intent with very abrupt but punctuated violence, where, like, when people get run over, it's very quick because they don't clearly have the budget to make it look extravagant, but it is effective in terms of, like, when the murders happen, they're quick and jolt you immediately. Um and it helps that like you mentioned you have great personalities and they're like the rival machine gun Joe played by Sylvester Stallone pre-Rocky in a great turn.
1: <laughs> yeah, no he's fantastic and he looks great.
0: Right. <laughs> And uh, then the Jason Satham one was a bit more of just like, it's more of like people race around and death is, can occur, but it's not about murdering people as much as, like, if you stop or you end up losing the race, you end up getting murdered, basically. And that one, and I think that one's kind of fun for what it is, it's one of the better Paul W.S. Anderson movies, which isn't saying a lot. No, um, that's
1: saying nothing, but yeah, I, I definitely agree with you.
0: It is way more on the racing in there, but the racing sequences are pretty fun, and of course, Statham, as you mentioned, also Joan Allen's so great as the villain in that movie. Yeah, she's fantastic. She's Ellen barking it up.
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah, big time, yeah.
0: Perfectly. Um, and Jason Clark's also so there's, like, the asshole security guard guy. That one, it's not a great movie, but it's a fun little B-movie for mm-hmm. what it is. It's a I think the movie. Right, it's a good example of like the higher budget, especially Jason Statham movies. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think the problem with Death Race 2050, which I don't think I hate as much as you do, necessarily, the trouble is just that in the original, there's a lot more authentic, like sort of grime and grit, that even the Jason Statham one kind of replaced with um, at least really cool-looking cars and a more effective sort of world-building with its bigger budget... This one wants to build the sort of same world and story, come to that same one as the, uh, Death Race 2000, but it just doesn't have the talent or the budget at all to do that. And they use a lot of green screen, and they try and have the actors put so much personality into it, and it never quite works with most of them. Um, I thought, actually, I liked Manute Bennett and also uh, his um, uh, Navigator Yeah, Yeah, uh, Marcy Miller. I thought they were fine as sort of like a lead. They honestly made it far more bearable than it could have been (laughs) by comparison. Uh, It's just that a lot of the personalities around them are just like very flat one-joke stereotypes um, for most of it. Um, uh, Like there's the rapper uh, Minerva um, whose literal rap is like um, kill, fuck, kill, fuck, or whatever the hell it is. Uh,
1: Drive, 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 kill, 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 fuck, kill.
0: Right, and... Oh, good. And there's uh the Jamie Presley wannabe, um, oh. who's, like, oh. this weird cult leader that, like, has various mixes of, like, Christianity and Islamic yeah. ideologies and all this other stuff. It's it, And they make a joke, I guess, out of that, where it's like, oh, she has a very confusing ideology, but also, what is the joke? It's just that it's just an excuse to have, like, any kind of different, like, Oh, look, here's a suicide bomber. Here's a cult that, like, willingly gets run over by her. All this other stuff. It packs so many ideas into there where, like, Frankenstein and, like, Machine Gun Joe and some of the other, like, racers that were in the original movie, they had, like, one gimmick. And it was simple, effective. They didn't overplay it. Versus this movie overplays the fuck out of pretty much everything.
1: (laughs) Yeah, dude. And, I mean, it's just chocked full of CGI blood and... Gun, you know, muzzle flashes and explosions and smoke. And I, I mean, it,
0: and even the few the... practical effects that are in there are terrible. Like, there's a guy who gets like bisected, and it's the worst combination of bad CG blood followed by a subpar trauma, like bottom half that keeps bleeding out. Oh, 100%. It looks like it's made out of paper mache. Right. And they just Um, over, they overemphasize on that, and what, like I said, the charm of the original Death Race was they knew how much of their budget they could work with, and they cut immediately so that you didn't notice that shit, versus this one loves to linger on it. Like, any of the gore sequences, any of, like, the offensive jokes, it just feels like they really, they're, like, nudging you about it. And that just feels a lot more like you're trying way too hard.
1: Right, and I think ultimately that's my problem with the movie. They're trying so hard to be like, look, we're satirizing this, and... Oh, my God, look how gory we are. Oh, here's some nudity for no reason. Hey, we got Malcolm McDowell with silly hair. Isn't that cool? This movie doesn't work for me on any level. And I mean any level. I I, I find it an offensive piece of shit, both on screen and to my senses. I just, I, oh, the so, the soundtrack, <laughs> the fucking, just the horrible CGI... The horrific acting just I can't I can't do this. this this is easily my least favorite movie that has been picked for a bad one by Miles
0: man I still say the crowning jewel is fucking wired I still think this is worse <laughs> well you know cause for me I would not go that far I think it's bad but I, I think there's a few interesting things that I at least kind of latched onto. Maybe out of desperation at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I actually people. like my favorite of sort of any of the racer characters is actually there's a um, AI racer. I think it's Keb, and it's like it's a self driving car who has like an existential crisis about like what am I? Yeah, I am a machine. That was
1: funny. Like, they could have gone somewhere with that. I will agree with that. That was a decent idea.
0: Right, and there's funny sequences with him. Like, there's a bit where he goes up to, like, a random wooden statue, and she's like, Miss, I am low on fuel. Can you please fill me up? I have no arms or legs. And Uh he's just like... And he runs her over. He's like, I will run you over if you don't do that. And then runs him over. It's like, we could have been friends. I have no friends. <laughs> like, I wish they did way more with that. That's such a cool idea, honestly. And it just really uses a Deus ex machina later. Or even there's some clever, like, nods and winks at stuff that I kind of like. Like the scene where um, Marcy Miller goes over and is talking with that particular uh, racer, uh, Minerva, um, at the bar. And it's the Beckdale bar. And they yeah. actually have a Bechdel test approved conversation. And it's actually a genuine moment between those two characters where she is, the Minerva isn't a stereotype. She's actually actually trying to have a person. A, a person, right. And they actually have like a bit of a moment later and she gets to kind of be a, like a badass talking to the, uh, like I said, the Jamie Presley wanted to be later on, but it just feels like too little too late at the same time for that character at that point. That just felt like, oh, hey, we wanted to throw this in and actually make her a character 15 minutes before the movie ended. And honestly, you know what? I will say that I think it ends on an interesting note that I was surprised was somewhat clever for me. Where basically the ending bit um, involves Frankenstein um, talking to the VR camera set that um, the Navigators have in this world. Every driver has a Navigator and they have a VR set, masks at at their homes who are unemployed to just be completely sucked into the death race and sit right next to the racer. I love that Frankenstein gives the speech... And runs over Malcolm McDowell. Make the future you want to have. And what every one of those people does is they do get up out of their chairs and they do actually go out, but it's to have massive chaos just happen and basically end civilization. I mm-hmm. thought that was actually a surprisingly clever note for the movie to end on. That, was an, that stuff was enough to at least make it not be my least favorite we've ever done for the show, but also it still doesn't redeem the movie it's still a bad movie that doesn't know what it's doing overall but there's enough clever ideas to where i'm like i could see somebody take this and make it a lot better but it still feels like a first draft a very early draft that is so malleable and not well connected at all this feels like a like a um
1: a fan-made sequel
0: yeah you know i would agree with that it definitely does feel it looks like a fan yes particularly with how badly Malcolm McDowell was CG'd in with, like, green oh. screen. So terrible. And then
1: <laughs> Yancey Butler, why is she in this?
0: Yeah, I don't know. It's, she's trying to play off a character who was in the original movie, who is a lot more interesting, where she's a resistance fighter that ends up nearly killing her niece, who was the navigator, and this all this political upheaval that's going on. It's a lot more... It's still over the top in that original movie, but it at least feels like they had a point.
1: Right, and the thing is... The original, you know, it it had a point, but it was a very small point to make, but they still did it. This one, they just aped to the original's point and then just ignored it.
0: Yeah, it's way more of a remake of the original than a sequel.
1: Yeah, I mean, way more of a remake.
0: Down to, they do a much lesser version of My Favorite Gag in the original movie, where he's about to run over all the old people, and then he runs over all the nurses who put him out there in the middle of the road, but this time it's like kids at a children's hospital.
1: Yeah, kids in wheelchairs.
0: Right. And and you know what, in Ugh. that- and in that original version, they are actually on a large city street, and mm-hmm. it looks like they rented out that entire city street to have like this entire sequence happen, which for a Roger Corman movie, that's a pretty big impressive a, stunt,
1: yeah, hell yeah, right,
0: versus in this one, it's at like a dirt road in the middle of nowhere, where of course, a children's hospital would be
1: <laughs> with um, some building behind them that could be a hospital but could also be like a library or <laughs>
0: You know, any a plastic factory. It could be anything. Some rich person's house they rented for the week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it, it just it, it definitely feels like it's so subpar in that way. What I like about the original is how it mixes that sort of satiric intent with genuinely like kind of enthralling racing sequences that aren't over the top huge, but at the same time, there's like, it's tactile. The, all these cars are on this like big abandoned highways it builds more of a world than this there's like literally a race sequence where it's a bunch of the racers going around and it's like on one very small street that's terrible it looks so cheap even for a corman production i think that just might be unfortunately corman's lack of sort of name recognition at this point
1: i think so other than like just underground recognition yeah because i mean the, the budget is
0: i mean was there a budget for this movie I couldn't find exactly. it, I'm, I'm sure Exactly, that's
1: what I'm saying
0: It was his pocket change, I'm guessing
1: it, it couldn't have been more than a million Probably not, no I'd say even at best a million
0: Probably, and, we're talking half a mil And Well, and half of that, whatever it was Was probably for Malcolm McDowell
1: oh, Yeah, maybe, or they just got him lunch And gave him a bed to sleep in <laughs> Who the hell knows what's going on with that guy
0: Let it's me just... make things perfectly clear <laughs> right. I need at least a cot And Good. fish and chips at lunch I need a weighted
1: blanket so I feel secure at night. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's just... Fuck, man. It, it, there's uh, The cars look so cheap and stupid in this. Mm-hmm. Like, to be fair, they did in the original too, but it was also 1975.
0: What I like in the original movie, it almost feels like it's the most demented version of like Wacky Races. Where what? the cars are very silly and cartoonish. But also at the same time, they have a distinct style that also works. This feels very random. Even the Jason Statham the movie, they basically kinda did like all the cars feel almost like they're second-tier Mad Max cars.
1: Yeah, in a looked, good way. They look like twisted metal cars.
0: Right, yes. Twisted metal is a really good example too. because I, I think Death Race could work as a new concept. I wouldn't mind if someone were to try and do something sim- more similar to like the Roger Corman version that's more satiric and a bit more gory. But I think what you would need almost and this would never happen. But I'd almost want, like, a Speed Racer-level budget where you're able to do just crazy shit with the cars. Where it almost feels like it's a fucking Hot Wheels movie, but with gore. Yeah, I could see... and You
1: know what? That would actually be enjoyable compared to this.
0: Yeah. Which, which I did
1: not find enjoyable at all.
0: No. This, um, was a, this
1: was a real slog to get through, dude.
0: It doesn't help. It's also about... <clears throat> 20 minutes longer than the original version, which is a mistake. Yeah, and you feel those 20 minutes, too. The the original version is only about, like, 79 minutes. It's barely theatrical length, but it... Because it knows when to go in, go out. It doesn't Mm -hmm. have... The premise doesn't need more than that, really.
1: Wait, they know what you're wanting to see. Mm -hmm. Like, the, the point of the movie is these guys in crazy cars mowing down pedestrians trying to win a race. That's the point of the movie. This, you know, with the resistance who gives a shit... With the Jed perfectus guy, where he's like might be a closet homosexual, but he might not be, I mean just how offensive that even is to what, how he acts, you know women slapping sex stuff,
0: you know, it just there's no need for any of it. The satire feels a lot more like this is the example of like what people usually like the worst fans of South Park get wrong about South Park, right. That's kinda of what this feels like. Just there's you want to be satirical, but you're just kinda of like trying to push edges without any point to it. Yeah. Ultimately, I agree. yeah. It, it feels like we said so unstructured, so mealy, so awkward. I will give the Jade Perfectus guy that he had one of the few jokes I actually laughed at. There was a point where his um, navigator compliments Frankenstein, and he's like, How dare you say that? Oh, it's it's still in the air. I can't believe it. And he like waves away like it's a fart. Once again, maybe oh, out okay. of Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> Yeah, I think it had to be. No, I think it had to be at a certain point. But you know, uh, let's go into our final thoughts then on Death Race 2050, Adam.
1: This is, like I said, my least favorite movie we've watched. Um, I find it offensive on every possible level. This was one of the hardest movies for me to watch from beginning to end. Um, I found myself getting up to use the bathroom and not pausing it. I you know just like I don't care I like I did not care within 20 minutes. I watched the whole thing and I find myself dumber for having done done it. There's a big fat no on this one for me.
0: For me, it's more just like a skinny no. It's like oh, no. Okay. I I don't like it. It's a shame because I think especially with so much time between obviously this one and the original Death Race, I think you could have made something very relevant for the times. Something that could have, like, updated a lot of the silly sort of concepts that, like I said, didn't need to be, like, a scathing political satire, even, like, something like Brazil lurches on. Um, And I think it had certain points where I thought they kind of edged toward that in interesting ways. Like I mentioned, the AI car or even the ending, I thought those were clever concepts that I think if you had either a bigger budget or better talent or even just a few more passes at that script to, you know, not rush out a Roger Corman production like he does, I think you could have had an interesting political satire for the modern age that's also, like, a silly, fun, gory B-movie. And I don't think it really satisfies on either level, ultimately. Despite, I think everyone's trying. I think, like I mentioned, uh, Manu Bennett and Marcy Miller are fine leads who I think get you through most of this movie better than you would expect. But it's still ultimately just kind of a wasted opportunity. I would say it's not quite the worst one. Agree to disagree. (laughs) (laughs) And on that pessimistic bitter note, that is the end of our discussion on dystopian fiction films. Uh, Before we do our picking for next week's topic, which we'll do at the very end of the show, we have some closing notes to do. Uh, First, we got some feedback from all of you out there. Over at the Facebook page and Twitter page, which is at DEDBpod, we ask every Monday before we record these episodes about what's your favorite and least favorite in whatever topic that we're doing. Uh, for films, and uh, we got a few people in reference to their best and worst dystopian fiction films. Uh, First, we got James Rodriguez, who says, Children of Men remains one of my favorites from the phenomenal long takes to how frighteningly relevant it is. In this day and age, uh, the scene where the fighting stops in the war zone always leaves me in tears. Um, I also have to love... The Lobster, a blackly humorous satire on relationships and how far we go for love. Um, As for least favorites, Babylon AD is the result of Children of Men being given a lobotomy, and Gamer is less interesting than the premise sounded. Then there's Battlefield Earth, which is more off-putting of Scientology than the Going Clear documentary could have been. Anna Robertson Emmy says Looper, as uh, one of her favorites Um, Brian Kane says the game Half-Life 2 did a great job at um, enveloping you into a bleak alien occupied planet Uh, Snowpiercer is as bleak as dystopian fiction gets Um, remember the movie Branded what a hilariously bad movie not as crazy as it once seemed though Um, Elwood Tiberius who is at Elwood underscore Tiberius on Twitter, said uh, Starship Troopers was too damn prescient about what happens post-9-11. Uh, Children of Men as well did that. Um, and as far as ones that suck, I haven't seen too many. Probably a YA property about how love is outlawed or something.
1: <laughs>
0: and then a friend of the show, Dan Chambers, said uh, Warriors of the Lost World and the FP are my favorites. Lol. And then uh, Rachel Hillis also said uh, favorites, probably Snowpiercer and the Hunger Games films. Least favorites, uh, the first Purge movie. The chronological one, not the movie titled The First Purge. Which I will second her honestly on. The First Purge is actually the only good one of those. The most recent one. Yeah, no, that's actually, I agree. The rest are kind of shitty. Well, it's weird. I think they progressively were getting better. Where like the first one is a complete waste of that premise on a bad home invasion movie. Yeah, it
1: goes in reverse order.
0: Right, the, the second movie is, like, a very bargain bin version of a John Carpenter movie. Yep. The third movie is an over-the-top satire, but at least has more of a point than any of the previous ones do. Uh-huh. And then the fourth one is actually a pretty good scathing satire, especially sort of, like, how... waste like relations and things. Yes, yeah, yeah and oh, and even it has, like, similar issues with, like, green screen. Any of the scenes with Barista Tomei are terrible in that movie. Yeah, well, They're really yeah. bad. But it actually, it's much better than any of those other previous ones. I would definitely... If you want to see one Purge movie, that one.
1: Yeah, and you don't have to see the other ones in order to enjoy that. Because it's a time.
0: prequel, technically. Right. Any of those other ones um, spark your fancy, Adam? Well,
1: uh, Looper, I, I kind of... I like and I hate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's just things about Looper. Like, when they're at the diner and Joseph Gordon-Levitt sitting there with Bruce Willis and he's like you know time travel you know how, how did how do you time travel doesn't matter how I time travel it doesn't make any sense to you it's all whatever like wait a minute yeah it's a movie about time travel and you did not give a second thought of how you did it like I just felt that was kind of important um I didn't need like a scene with dudes in white coats, you know, experimenting. But anything, just Gordon Levitt's contacts.
0: I really like Looper, but my biggest issue is how they felt they needed to completely manipulate his face with makeup to badly yeah. look like Bruce Willis. That does not. That, that didn't hold not, up at the time. It doesn't. Because he up now.
1: did it in the acting. He was great as young Bruce Willis.
0: Yes. Just the way
1: he acted. No, I agree with you. The makeup's the biggest travesty. I love Children of Men. It's an I, amazing
0: yeah. fucking movie.
1: Easily Clive Owen's best.
0: Well, yeah, because that was sort of peak. Like, it was that and Shoot'em Up were, like, right after each other. I'm like, oh, man, he's going to be great. That nothing. didn't happen. <laughs> nothing.
1: I mean, he was. I even liked him in Sin City. I thought he was awesome. Yes, true. Exactly, yes. But then it's like, nothing happened with him. Like, he did that killer elite. And Shoot'em Up was a huge bomb.
0: No, it wasn't. It's a shame, because that's a fun-ass movie.
1: That's a f- I, I hated it when I first saw it. I like it now. But no, I I really like that. Starship Troopers, I love. I've always loved it. It's schlocky fun.
0: I recently rewatched that. I've been going through some of Verhoeven uh-huh. stuff and I, I love Starship Troopers. And that was when the first time I watched it, I was kind of more in the camp of like, oh man, it feels like many critics at the time kind of felt this way of like, oh man, Verhoeven, like he's lost his touch. This feels way less intentionally satirical. And it's like, oh no, it is because he fucking hates his stupid, awful teen actors yeah. in that movie. <laughs> yep. it, it, and especially with like um, Neil Patrick Harris and the all the Nazi imagery that happens in that movie. Uh-huh. It's, it is so scathing and remarkable. Not my favorite for Hoven, but one of his best. No, ones. me neither.
1: But yeah, I agree. Um, I haven't seen Warrior of the Lost World or
0: FP. I've seen Warrior of the Lost World as an MST3K episode, which was funny. Um, and uh, but the FP, oh, oh. the FP is like it's a weird low budget. Um, yeah, I sort know of, what it is. It's like right.
1: a DDR movie, like by the by Trost or whatever. I know the sequel just came out. It's just I. Eh. No. I haven't even gotten around to it. It's not that I'd, I'm against it; just I haven't been able to watch it, so
0: I haven't. I don't remember liking it that much at the time. Oh, okay. When I when I did see it, um, Snowpiercer is dope. Very underrated movie as well. That's a yeah. really fucked up, weird. That also, that the influence from like Brazil and Gilliam definitely as felt with Snowpiercer. Oh,
1: yeah. Snowpiercer is dope. My favorite Chris Evans performance. Oh, he's so great. <laughs> he's so fucking good in that. Yep, I love Snowpiercer. He
0: has a monologue that, in any other hands, would be oh. so stupid. Seth's so effed up. Yep, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I don't give—I honestly don't give two fucks about the Hunger Games movies.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the only one I liked was the second one, The Catching Fire. Mm-hmm. I thought that was the best sort of exploration of what they were trying to do. Um, honestly, those movies should have just been all Stanley Tucci. Yeah, I, right. I would. <laughs> Kill for a spinoff about Stanley Tucci's announcer character, which I saw we didn't the even first one, that was enough. right, which we didn't even talk about in Death Race twenty fifty. How much they emphasize on like trying to do like oh, those announcers,
1: absolutely.
0: Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. With, like,
1: He's Stanley Tucci, and she's Elizabeth Banks.
0: Right. The two announcers are, and they're yeah. very poor imitations of both them, because uh, you can't duplicate Tucci. The Girl on Fire. <laughs> right. Great. <laughs> just just watch any super cut of L.O. Stanley Tucci in those movies. Mm-hmm. And um, Brian King mentioned Branded. Branded is a fascinating movie I'd love to talk about on this I've show. I've never even heard of it. it it's a movie about um, basically this world where we're completely surrounded and covered in ads everywhere in the city. And they start coming to life. And uh, it makes huh? no sense. It's It's like it's a... It's made by like I believe a Croatian filmmaker and translated the script to English and oh it's got boy. it's got fucking Max von Sydow in it. What? <laughs> it's it's weird. I would love to cover that on the well, show I gotta some see point. see <laughs> well, it. That's a back pocket one for sure. Uh-huh. Uh <laughs> but uh thank you for all that feedback there. We did also have some feedback in regards to some of our um last few episodes. A friend of the show Dan Chambo said for our last episode about female action heroes, he said um uh, in terms of quality, best, Hunger Games, worst, Resident Evil, due to it being run to the ground, guilty pleasure, Underworld. Those Underworld movies are just stupid fun and she kicks ass. Unfortunately,
1: I can't disagree with him. I didn't see the last Underworld movie where she's blonde for whatever the fuck reason. Although the one, the what was it, the third one where she came back?
0: Was that the third one? It's weird. I've only seen the last Underworld movie, but I've seen every Resident Evil movie. <laughs> wow. I saw Underworld Blood Wars and um, that one was fun for even how terrible it was it has one of my favorite it has one of my favorite moments involving a a female villain in which the female villain forces one of her henchmen to eat her out and she like clenches her ass in defiance it's a great (laughs) moment I love I love the villain in that movie that movie is a lot of fun I would say Blood Wars but then again I have not seen any of the other ones I don't know if those are similarly fun
1: they're worth it yeah they're fun I would say they're fun.
0: Uh, the Resident Evil
1: movies are terrible.
0: Some of them I like. I really like the third one, which is the one directed by the Highlander guy, the one that where they're one in I Vegas.
1: Yep. Yeah, Apocalypse, yeah. I
0: think. That one, and I also, I liked the fifth one, I think it is. It's the one where um, Milo Jovovich is going through all these weird virtual simulations uh, of like what her old life used to be and Michelle Rodriguez comes back after the oh, first movie. I hate. Oh, I,
1: I hated it. I,
0: I thought that one was kind of fun, especially that's the one with the most uh, whisker, uh, who I think is the most charmingly stupid thing about any of those movies. Oh, I
1: agree. Dude, talk about filling out your clothes. He's so muscled. He's just going to burst through that leather.
0: It's insane. And he talks (laughs) like this, Alice. Welcome. (laughs) But all those other ones here are varying degrees of unwatchable, especially the last one was really terrible.
1: I've tried, literally started and stopped it, I think, Four
0: times yeah so i'm like well i gotta watch it. i've seen them all i can't i can't do it yeah for sure um and then we also had some feedback just in reference um w- speaking of that episode we also had um r ron r2 which is at r ron 007 said um i just want to thank double edge doubleville for reminding me of haywire and how awesome it is well you're welcome R A, A- ron <laughs> r- ron you're right r- ron and then, um, also, this is one of a few examples we got that just kind of repeated. Uh, Lance Langford, a uh, friend of the show, who was also on the Horror Returns podcast, saying, Sucker Punch gets shit on all the time, but I love it. And um, this uh, Oliver Sloan, who also had feedback from our last episode of Loyal Fan, also said he reiterated that it's misunderstood. And you had a bit of a conversation with Lance. So this fucking guy, right?
1: <laughs> he sends right. me a message saying that his podcast is going to do an offshoot episode on, the, on sucker punch. If I'd like to join and like a butt vagina, I'm like, yeah, sure. I'd love to be on it. Well, it turns out he was just fucking with me. So I, I, you know, I took the bait. Then I called him a bastard or whatever, but then he proceeds to tell me how wrong I am. And that sucker punch is a great movie. And that he can't believe that I hated as much as I did. And that we quote diarrhea shit all over it. And then I'm like, Hey man, You can like it. A lot of people do. Even if nobody likes it, you're entitled to. It's my opinion. It's Thomas's opinion. We don't enforce it upon anybody. You can like the steaming pile of shit that is sucker punch.
0: We didn't enforce anything upon our guest Sarah, who also hated it.
1: Who saw it for the first time and fucking hated it.
0: With fresh eyes, she
1: thought it was garbage. Exactly. And talk about coming from a complete different perspective. So, yeah. Fuck you, Lance.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But go listen to The Horror Returns. It's a fun show.
1: I don't know if I'm going to promote their show.
0: (laughs) Adam's insisting we don't promote the show anymore. (laughs) Uh, We want to thank all of you for all the feedback, uh, regardless of how constructive or not it was um, and we want to also thank Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used on the show uh, listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com uh, also thanks to Emily Scarter for the art used in her show uh, she accepts commissions at fiverrwith 2 slash we uh, also are on as I mentioned Facebook and Twitter at dedbpod and also you, we have a gmail account at doubleedgedoublebill@gmail.com, at gmail.com where you can send feedback to um, it's all spelled out there and you can also follow me at my own individual Twitter account. I am at Who's Tommy. And I do writing for reviews and such at mariannithomas.wordpress.com. I'll probably have a Captain Marvel review out there as of when we're recording this. And uh, you can also find Adam uh, just trapped inside that big power plant torture device in his own vision of a different future. It's called marriage. Great uh, 80s stand-up material. <laughs> What's the deal?
1: Why don't you make the whole plate out of the black box?
0: <laughs> our, our last minute guest, Jerry Seinfeld, everybody oh, on the no. show, and also uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes and all the different podcast platforms like Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, App, YouTube. Uh, all, we're uh, most places where podcasts are potentially available. And rate and review us to give the show more visibility, so we can get out of this dystopian hell that is are especially ratings and reviews we don't have that many
1: come on man anything anything i'd be happy with being voted the worst podcast at this point
0: that's true that might drive attention as well Exactly. (laughs) um though that's not to decry anybody who has rated and reviewed us as well we thank you and we appreciate it thank you so much yes and now um we will finally get this to an end here with our picks for next week so next week in honor of um, the movie Us coming out from Jordan Peele, which I'm extremely excited about.
1: Yeah, me too, man. I'm super, super interested. I can't fucking
0: wait. But we decided in honor of that, which is a movie in which um, Lupita Nyong'o and her family uh, go off to their lake house and find home invaders that uh, look very familiar. They are played by themselves. So it's a, it's a whole double-acting thing going on there. Uh, we decided to do an episode about films in which people play multiple roles. Which, to be fair, this would count for anything where at least one actor plays two roles. Potentially, uh, we yes. don't have to, it doesn't have to just be like a night professor level. Everyone is played <laughs> by no, the God. same actor. No. no, not necessarily. But Adam has the two good movies. I have the two bad movies. And as I stated before, the whole gimmick of our show is that uh, we don't know what the two movies are from each other, except that they fit into the specific category. And we each pick a number between 1 and 10, and whatever number gets closest to numbers the other has assigned to their two movies, that ends up being our good or bad pick. So for me, Adam, in your two choices, I will pick the number 3.
1: At number 3, with a bullet, I have Christopher Nolan's The Prestige.
0: Okay. Wow, that's uh, a bit of a spoiler for that movie if you haven't seen it.
1: Well, yeah, but if you haven't seen it, then, you know, get off your fucking couch.
0: (laughs) Don't go see it.
1: Stay on your couch. Rent the movie.
0: (laughs) That's true. It's over ten years old. You should see it this way. It's an underrated Christopher Nolan movie, for sure. Uh,
1: Yeah, definitely. At number seven, I had last year's Suspiria.
0: Right, Right. where Tilda Swinton plays at least three different roles, including a man, and and she's quite... At least.
1: I'm convinced there's like five other ones that we just don't have a spot. She was
0: actually Dakota Johnson as well.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I believe it.
0: (laughs) Well, Uh, um, now, Adam, for uh, my two movies. Okay, before I pick, I'm
1: going to tell you right now that there's one that I have in my head that if you picked it, I'm going to (laughs) quit.
0: Oh, tension.
1: (laughs) I want to go number five, right in the middle.
0: Well, um, at number four, I had a movie that we've kind of referenced before on this show. I think is incredibly fascinating as a movie. It is uh, a vanity project from 1991, nothing but trouble.
1: Oh, that is not what I thought, and I don't hate that movie. So I'm sitting pretty. What was your other choice?
0: My other choice was at number seven. I had Night Professor 2, The Clumps.
1: Oh, neither were my choice. I thought you were going to pick fucking North with Elijah Wood.
0: No. <laughs> I'm not going to inflict that on myself.
1: No. Yeah. I'm like, he's going to get me back for Death Race. Ooh. So, nothing but trouble and the prestige. Well, well, that's going to be interesting.
0: That will definitely be very interesting. And uh, we look forward to having that discussion next week. And we, for all you all to tune into that. But until next time, uh, we got to fly off into the sky with our big bird wings at him. Let's go. Long live the Tooch. <laughs> Good night. Good night.